All right, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We like to study through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 15. We're putting in at verse 22. We're going to go down to verse 39. Open your Bibles, follow along, navigate on your device, whatever works for you. Mark 15, 22 through 39. The topic, Mark gives us a view of the crowd at the crucifixion through the eyes of Jesus. The title of our message, When I Survey the Slanderous Crowd. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, these times when we're in the Gospels uh, talking about the crucifixion, we want to be especially respectful of the text and of what's going on. At the same time, we want to bring it forward, Lord, to our lives in the 21st century here in Hanford, California, and the surrounding areas. We want to be inspired and encouraged. We want to be challenged and blessed, Lord, by it. And so, uh, Lord, nothing we can do, but everything that you can do as our teacher in taking the living word of God and dividing it, Lord, properly in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. You video gamers, you're all too familiar with the term first-person perspective. It means you see everything in the game as if you were looking directly at the action. You're the shooter with the gun in your hands. You're the pilot in the cockpit. You're the driver that's behind the wheel. You see your hands, maybe a little bit of your arms, but that's about it, to preserve the perspective that you are actually there. The action takes place right in front and all around you. The Gospel of Mark has been called the Gospel of Action. Mark moves quickly from place to place. He skillfully uses present tense verbs that draw you into the scene. Reading Mark's Gospel, you feel as though you are actually there. Mark's treatment of the crucifixion takes that one step further. He gives you the perspective of Jesus. You don't so much see Jesus on the cross, you see what Jesus saw from the cross. Mark divides the crucifixion of Jesus into two three-hour blocks of time. In the first three hours, you're going to see what Jesus saw looking out upon the crowd. And then in the second three hours, you're going to see what Jesus saw looking up towards heaven. I'll organize my thoughts about this first-person perspective around those two points. Number one, Jesus directs you to look out upon humanity from his perspective while on the cross. And number two, Jesus directs you to look upward to heaven from his perspective while on the cross. Let's take a look first of all in verses 22 through 32 as Jesus looks out upon the crowd. We spend too much time discussing and describing the procedure and the pain of crucifixion. While all the Gospels state the historical fact of the crucifixion of Jesus, none of them has a single word of description of the physical agonies that were involved. I think it's wise to follow their lead and say as little as possible about the suffering. Now here's something I didn't really realize before. The person crucified was lifted only high enough to get their feet about a foot Above the ground. Don't you always think about Jesus super elevated up in the air? But uh, actually, these crucifixions took place close to the ground. That means the crowd was practically at eye level with Jesus during his ordeal. And it lends support to our first person approach to the text. Verse 22 They brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. 
We went into some detail in our last study on Golgotha, the place of a skull. The Latin for skull is the word Calvaria, where we get our word Calvary. So we said that Calvary Chapel was really Skull Church. And we've been working on a logo ever since last week, but not, not quite ready yet. Somebody said it would make a great tattoo, and I said, you first. But anyway... From the wording, we can deduce that Calvary is a knoll or what we call a hill. It was elevated ground. It probably got its name because it looks somewhat like a skull. The rock formation itself mimics a skull from a distance. Jesus could see Calvary as he approached it. He was going up to Calvary. It's our first point of interest from his first-person perspective. Here's why. Because Jesus is the creator of all things. In Colossians 1.16, we read this. For by him, referring to Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that on earth, visible and invisible. And so we can say confidently, Jesus made Calvary. He formed the hill far away upon which would be placed that old rugged cross. We can't even begin to speculate what it would be like to be Jesus in eternity past making that hill, choosing to make it in the shape of a skull just outside where Jerusalem would be founded and built so that he could eventually die upon it. But through Jesus' eyes, as he sees Calvary for the last time before dying, we can get a glimpse and a sense of the entire plan of redemption in between its creation and his crucifixion. They're like bookends. Jesus created that hill. Now he's dying on that hill. He made Calvary anticipating the cross. And now he was going there to finish things. The A-team had a slogan. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, Jesus' plan from eternity past to die on a cross at Calvary was coming together. His slogan might have been something like, I love them, so my plan is coming together. Verse 23, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. The Talmud is the record of the teachings of Jewish rabbis that it spans a period of about 600 years from the first century uh, all the way through the seventh century. In it, we learned that it was customary for certain Jewish women from Jerusalem to come to the aid of victims of crucifixion. Specifically, they provided a sedative to ease their pain. It was wine which had anesthetic properties because it was mingled with myrrh. Jesus refused it. His refusal meant he would remain in control of his mental capacities. Have you ever had serious drugs prescribed for pain? I have, a couple of times. And I'm thankful for them, but man, is it weird. I remember one time I tell them, I tell the doctors now I'm allergic to Demerol. They gave me Demerol for my kidney stones. And, and the pain was taken care of because I was so busy hallucinating that I was going to kill my family. I remember waking Pam up in the middle of the night, telling her there was something wrong. And as she turned to look at me, she looked like she had the giant head of an owl. And I, I convinced her that there was something wrong to the point where she said, do you believe that me and the children are in any danger? And I said, I think you might be. It was very serious. Just give me that old Valium. I, like, just you know, give me something happy. I want happy drugs. But the idea here is that Jesus remained in control of his mental faculties. 
Nothing that he did or said on the cross could be attributed to an altered state of consciousness. It wasn't the wine talking when he uttered his sayings from the cross. Whatever strength he had could only be attributed to God. Verse 24, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. One commentator wrote this. He said, typically, a Jew wore five articles of clothing, an inner robe, an outer robe, sandals, the girdle, or we would call it a belt, and the turban. When the four lesser things had been assigned, that left the great outer robe. I must mention that this was a fulfillment of prophecy from Psalm 22. It's verse 18, which reads, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We'll see more of Psalm 22 in just a sec. Jesus looked down upon the soldiers who were acquiring his earthly garments while he was dying for them naked on the cross. Do you see their vain pursuit? I mean, think of that scene for a minute. After having his garments laundered, they probably have to sell them. I mean, after all, Roman soldiers didn't go around dressed like Jews. They didn't want his clothes so that they could go to the Roman ball. Uh, A Roman didn't want to look like a Jew, but there was some value in the clothing after they could maybe get the blood and stuff off of it, and they'd have to sell them. They were captivated by a few pieces of clothing for which they'd get a handful of salt when all the while the one who could grant spiritual riches and eternal rewards was right there, right next to them. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. As Jews reckoned time, the third hour would be 9 a.m. This first section of verses takes us from 9 a.m. until noon. It reads as though a countdown had begun, as if a timer was ticking down. Six hours were left after three and a half years of public ministry, after some 30 years of relative obscurity, after an eternity of preparation and planning. Have you ever been in the home stretch of some project or some accomplishment? Maybe something that's taken quite a long time and now it's just about ready to be done. Jesus was counting down the minutes until his work was finished. And they crucified him. That is all the description of Jesus' suffering you're going to get from Mark. It must not be important we describe it in words or recreate it on film. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. But there's kind of a feeling uh, we get since we're, you know, captivated by movies and videos and things like that. That we have to see a depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as gory and as bloody and as terrible as possible. I would submit to you that the gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, didn't think that was necessary at all. And so while it may not be wrong to do so, we don't need to do that. Verse 26, and the inscription of his accusation, excuse me, was written above, the king of the Jews. Jesus couldn't see the placard, but he could watch as passersby read the words, then looked upon him. It's kind of like when you're talking to somebody and they're texting. You're, you can, you know, you're talking to them and you see what they're doing and, and you're just you know, wanting to punch them in the face. But anyway, of course, I do that all the time. I have a bad neck. I can't look up for very long. No, that's not true. And so Jews were obsessed with the promises of the kingdom of God on earth. I can say that because his disciples were representative of that. 
They were always asking Jesus if he was going to establish the kingdom. They were asking him who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They wanted to know if they could be on his left hand and on his right hand in the kingdom. After he rose from the dead, they still peppered him with questions about establishing the kingdom. And so this was an obsession that the Jews had from their Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, from their scriptures. But they only thought about it in material terms as a physical rule of the king. The placard challenged them to wrestle with all the scriptures that predicted a suffering king who would first save them spiritually. And so looking, as Jesus looked upon them, they were looking upon him, seeing this split, the king of the Jews, but could this be their king, suffering? And yet they knew of the suffering of, of, of one in the Old Testament, and so it was a real challenge. Verse 27. With him also they crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And so we can almost see Jesus looking to his right and then to his left at these two men about to enter eternity. Because Jesus hung there, numbered with them, either or both of them could be declared righteous and enter heaven. He was taking their place in death, taking upon himself their sin, offering his righteousness. That's what it means that he was numbered with them. He was a man like them, but because he was also God, he could represent them. Everyone on his right hand, everyone on his left hand. In other words, everyone around Jesus that was condemned to death, the whole human race, he was numbered with them and could save them. And Jesus could see firsthand the urgency of his sacrifice as our substitute. Both of these men were at their earthly end, but only at the beginning of eternity. It was essential that they literally, but also figuratively and spiritually, turn to Christ and be saved. Verse 29, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus had used the temple as a backdrop for telling the Jews that if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would rise from the dead after three days. They totally misinterpreted and misrepresented his words. Seeing the spiritual blindness of human beings was nothing new for Jesus. But from the cross, he was on the verge of of the coming of the Holy Spirit that he had promised to his disciples. His death and resurrection and ascension into heaven would trigger Pentecost, And so he could see these blind hearts, but know that soon his disciples would be preaching the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit to open up blind eyes. And I can only wonder if some of those same people who passed by Calvary that day were in the crowd on the day of Pentecost in the temple, hearing Peter preach the gospel and receiving Christ as their Savior. Verse 31, likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. If Jesus had saved himself, he could not have saved others. We know that. The only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. He came to die and then rise from the dead. We always think seeing is believing. We have that saying. But when it comes to salvation, you need to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you receive spiritual sight. Mark chose to not mention that one of the condemned men received the Lord before he died and was promised paradise. 
Mark wants us to see all of humanity in stubborn, stiff-necked opposition to Jesus. It's not that Mark didn't know or uh, was confused. He knew what happened, but he chooses to omit this. And we've talked about this a few times over the last few weeks. The gospel writers pick and choose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the events that they're talking about to preserve a theme that they are trying to communicate. And here it is that all of humanity was stubborn and stiff-necked against God's Son. It's validation that there is no other way for God to save humanity. All have sinned. There is none righteous, not even one. If I dare use the word, the total opposition to Jesus was a comfort to him that he was and is the only way to heaven. His dying was crucial. If you're a Christian, you've come to the cross where Jesus died, and you've believed it was for you. You've had your sins forgiven, and he's imparted to you eternal life. You've been born again. Now you too can look out upon humanity from the perspective of the cross. Do you see folks pursuing good works like the Jerusalem women thinking it will earn them salvation? Of course you do. Every religion in the world, ancient and modern, and every philosophy, every other way of thinking that... that postulates a way to get to heaven is based on good works of some kind. There's something that a human being can do so that God will think, wow, that's fantastic. You deserve to come to heaven. You're not as bad as Charles Manson. Most people think that there is a hell and that maybe four or five people will be in there. Manson, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin for sure, you understand what I mean. But I'm, I'm pretty good. I haven't murdered anybody. I wanted to kill that guy in the freeway, but that, that passed. I haven't super lied to anybody. Just little white lies to help them. And you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and so the, the, I'm not saying the Jerusalem women thought that their good works were going to get them to heaven. But we can extrapolate from that. There are people who believe that. As a Christian, you know that there are no works that can approve you to God other than the work that Jesus did on the cross. And we see that. That's, that's something that we see based on the cross. Do you see folks distracted by the pursuit of wealth like the soldiers gambling for goods and ignoring eternity? Well, sure, that's a bedrock in our culture. Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And while that has its place, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, what does it gain you to, or what does it advantage you to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? It doesn't. Do you see religious leaders teaching false doctrines like the chief priests and the scribes and thereby leading millions with them to hell? Of course you do. The world is full of isms and religions. We call them cults because they're uh, the broad way that leads to destruction. Do you see men dying on every side and sense the urgency of the gospel? Maybe we don't feel this all the time, but you know it's true. I don't want to get morbid, but every time you see somebody and then leave them, that might be the last time you ever see that person or that they ever see you. No one has a a lease on life. No one has a guarantee. I'm not saying you should live your life like that, but I think about that. Because I so often, in my death notifications that I make as a chaplain, 
At least 85% of the time, somebody says, I just saw him and I wish I had said this. Or our last words together were sour or something like that. And the truth is, there is an urgency about life. Life is a precious thing and it can be gone in a moment. But we understand that as Christians more, I think, than the non-believer. We need to just put it into action. Now, we're in a first-person mission that isn't a game. In fact, let me suggest something. I hope you won't think it's mystical. A couple of scriptures to back it up. If you're a believer, God the Holy Spirit lives within you. The Apostle Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. And he also said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Without taking it too far, I think we can see ourselves being animated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You've read devotions before where, you know, it says something like, God has no hands but your hands, no feet like your, uh, but your feet, no mouth but your mouth. Well, think of it, uh, let's update that illustration to a first-person perspective game. It's as if the Holy Spirit is inhabiting you to play the game. Only it's not a game, it's, it's deadly serious. And wherever you look, there are spiritual things to be accomplished. We're not holding a gun, but we do have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're first-person sharers, let's put it that way. Walking forward in obedience, he uses us. Here's a couple of questions to mull over with that illustration. If your walk with the Lord were translated into a first-person perspective game, what level would you be at? It's not a slander on anybody, but are you, are you just beginning to play? Are you at the beginning level? Because that's what these games are all about. You know, they're getting to the next level where it's harder and harder and harder, but your skill is increasing. And what are you doing to get to the next level? Think about that later today. Verses 33 through 39, Jesus directs you to look upward to heaven. This next three-hour block of time begins, and it's very different in its focus. There's a darkness covering the land during which something transpires between Jesus and his Father. Furthermore, although Jesus uttered seven sayings from the cross, Mark only records one, and it's the one that directs us to look upward to understand what was happening. And so let's get into it, verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon, when the sun was at its peak, until 3 p.m., a strange darkness came. And it says upon the whole land. That could mean Jerusalem. That could mean Israel. could mean the whole earth. doesn't matter which it is. It's still eerie and supernatural, even if it's a uh, just Jerusalem. And it's definitely supernatural, not an eclipse or any natural occurrence. It's God ruling the heavens because it's Passover, which always falls on a full moon, making a solar eclipse an impossibility from our way of understanding physics. So this is a miracle. It's a supernatural event. Now, many commentators wax eloquent on what took place during those three hours of darkness. I don't think we have enough biblical data to do that. All I can say is that Jesus went dark as he and his father concluded the work of his atoning sacrifice for sin. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the first thing to note about these words is that they are the opening of Psalm 22. We call them Psalm 22, verse 1. In Bible times, there were no numbered chapter and verse designations. If I were going to teach at a synagogue, I wouldn't tell everybody to open to Psalm 22, verse 1. 
I would quote the opening words of the psalm. I would get up and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everyone would know where in the Psalter I was reading from. I submit to you that the primary importance of Jesus quoting Psalm 22 was to draw the attention of the crowd to that particular portion of Scripture. Hearing those words, rather than first thinking about their meaning, they would be directed to Psalm 22. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's because Psalm 22 is a prophecy about the crucifixion that was written centuries before Jesus died on the cross. It depicts in great detail the future death of the Messiah. A sincere, rational Jew being directed to that psalm could have had a light bulb go off in their head in the midst of that darkness. They could have seen from God's word that this man on this cross was none other than the man predicted in the psalm and that he was dying to do a mighty spiritual work. Now, what I'm going to say next always gets me into trouble because it's not traditional. It's not a heresy. You don't need to blog about this tomorrow. Calvary pastor teaches heresy. It's not. There are other solid Bible teachers who say this, even though we are in the minority. I am not one who thinks that God the Father forsook Jesus while he was on the cross, turning his back on his son. Yes, Jesus shouted, why have you forsaken me? But it's pretty easy to establish that he was using that evangelistically, trying to get the crowd to understand what was going on. A little later in Psalm 22, it says twice, be not far from me. And then it clearly says, plainly says in verse 24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, notice, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. So yes, the psalm begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in verse 24 it says, but he hasn't. He hasn't turned his face from him. It isn't necessary for us to believe that God turned his back on Jesus while he was being made sin for us. In fact, it's a little weird to suggest that because Jesus told his disciples, I and my Father are one. And not that we understand everything about the deity and the humanity of Christ at the same time and and the trinity, the triunity of God, but it's a little weird to say that there was a time in which God the Father was separated from God the Son since they are a triunity. It's, It's an area of mystery that I'm not comfortable with. The main argument you'll hear is that God is too holy to look upon sin, and therefore at that moment, he had to turn away. Except that God has been looking upon sin ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. He looks upon it every day, all day. All he has to do is look at you, and he's looking upon sin. We're still sinners saved by grace. And so it's just not necessary to believe that there was this separation and to talk about it as if we knew what was going on during that time. We don't. Jesus was directing the crowd to look upward to God in order to understand what was happening and why it was happening. Before we leave verse 34, notice Jesus cried with a loud voice. A few hours earlier, Jesus had fallen under the weight of the cross as he carried it or a portion of it to Golgotha. Then he'd been nailed to the cross and he'd been upon it for six punishing hours. According to Psalm 22, it's pretty clear that demonic forces were torturing him on the cross as well. Yet here at the end, he cries with a loud, commanding voice. God the Father was strengthening him from heaven. 
Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now, the Jews had a superstition that Elijah might come to help you in your time of need. It's weird. I liken it today to people who pray to saints or to Mary rather than to God, thinking that they will help them. The Jews spoke Aramaic as well as Hebrew. In Aramaic, Elijah would be pronounced Eliah. The word my is ayah. So my God would be Eliah, sounding very similar to Eliah. So Jesus said Eliah, and the people heard Eliah. They misunderstood his cry. They did look upward, but it was in mockery that Elijah would come rather than in wonder that Psalm 22 was being fulfilled before their eyes. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. This is a different beverage than we had encountered earlier. This is one that would be carried by the soldiers. It's described as a sour wine vinegar that would have eggs mixed in with it. Now, some of you who are shaking your head, I know you drink that disgusting apple cider vinegar that people are sold on today as a cure-all. I did it for a while until I couldn't take it anymore. I've done a bunch of stuff like that. So have you. I, I, I don't, you can make fun of me. I make fun of you. You can make fun of me. For a long time, I swallowed garlic whole. That was back when I thought there were vampires. But no, garlic's good for you, so why not go for it? I still smell like garlic if you get close enough to me. All I have to do is be near Italian food and the garlic is drawn. It's like, it's like an osmosis. And so, so I've done a bunch of that stuff. But we thought, oh, who would drink sour vinegar wine with eggs in it? Yeah. Everybody on the internet, apparently. In fact, I'm surprised this hasn't become a biblical beverage. Right? Everybody's, oh, this is the diet the Bible proclaims. Yeah, you do it. In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus said, I thirst, but Mark omits that. He uses the incident instead to further emphasize the continued misunderstanding of the crowd. So Jesus said, I thirst, and they, they started to give him something for the thirst. But Mark says, yeah, I don't want to deal with it that way because I, don't, I want to keep this focus on the crowd and Jesus seeing the crowd. They were looking upward, but not to God. Their own superstitions kept them from seeing the pure word of God. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Mark tells us just enough to know that Jesus was in control. He did it with a loud voice. He dismissed his spirit in his own timing. It's Mark's way of letting us know that the work was finished. Something else happened to let us know Jesus' work was not just finished, but highly successful. I have finished many projects around my house. One or two of them are highly successful. The rest of them have had professional help in the aftermath. And so Jesus, he didn't just die on the cross. He did so successfully. Verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now we think of the temple as this huge complex of buildings and courtyards that King Herod designed and that were actually still under construction during the time of Jesus. The temple is two small rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies was only 225 square feet. It's a perfect cube. Its length, height, and width are all equal to 15 feet. 
It was God's special dwelling place in the midst of his people. During the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, God appeared as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire in and above the Holy of Holies. Now, his presence had left the Holy of Holies during the time of the Babylonian invasion of Israel, and it had not returned. You can read about this in the book of Ezekiel as the presence of God leaves the temple and then leaves Jerusalem. At the time of the temple, the second temple, Herod's temple, that presence was gone. Also gone, the familiar Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Those were taken from the temple before the Babylonian captivity and have fallen out of history. Maybe they're in Ethiopia, maybe they're under the temple in a chamber, but they're gone and they weren't there when Jesus was on the earth. However, the Holy of Holies still represented God's presence among his people. A thick curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. It symbolized humanity's separation from a holy God. This curtain was known as the veil, made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Archaeologists say the veil in the second temple, or Herod's temple, was four feet thick. It was torn from top to bottom. Have you ever seen these muscle-bound guys tear a phone book? You ever tried to do that? I, 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 I use the Hanford phone book. I couldn't do that, so I had to get the Hormona phone book, you know. I couldn't do that, so I finally went out to Riverdale and just <laughs> tore up their newspaper. Oh. But this is four feet. I mean, you can't even get your hands on this thing. And it's, a sim- it's symbolic as if God, and I think the word is anthropomorphically, what? reached down from heaven and tore that veil in half from top to bottom. You know, the priests were ministering in and around the temple at that time. There was an earthquake, earthquake at that time. It was dark at that time. The earthquake didn't do it because an earthquake would have made a jagged tear. But this was a clean tear down the middle, symbolizing that at the death of Jesus Christ, the way into the presence of God was open to any who would put their faith and trust in him. Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out, Like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Chances are this centurion had seen many, many men crucified. There was something remarkable about Jesus. No one had ever died on the cross in quite this manner with quite this majesty. You know, everything Jesus did had that caveat. People said, no one's ever taught like this before. No one's ever had this kind of authority before. And you could say, no one has ever died like this before on the cross. Now, don't get too excited about his statement. He said that Jesus was, past tense, the Son of God. means he thought of Jesus in the past tense as being dead and gone. A lot of people think today Jesus is in the past tense. They keep him on the cross where they don't need to deal with his claims upon their lives. People think that Jesus is another great religious leader. He's in the line of Confucius and Buddha and all of these other guys. And so they keep him on the cross. He was the son of God, whatever that means. I'll tell you what it means. It means that he was very God of very God and that he rose from the dead and he lives today. That's what it means. Buddha can't say that. Muhammad can't say that. Confucius can't say that. Well, Confucius, oh, we could do a whole new thing. Confucius can't say Things Confucius can't say. Oh, yeah, this is it. It's going to be my ticket to Wall Street. Anyway, Jesus was no martyr dying for his cause. He was the sinless son of God, sacrificing himself as the substitute for sin for the sinful human race. 
He's the savior of all men, the Bible says, especially those who believe. That means his death on the cross is capable of saving all men and those who believe are saved. He draws all men to himself, providing the grace to free the will that we might repent of our sin and receive him. I'm going to close this morning with this portion from Throned Upon the Awful Tree. It was penned in 1875 by John Ellerton. It goes like this. Throned upon the awful tree, king of grief, I watch with thee. Darkness veils thine anguished face. None its lines of woe can trace. None can tell what pangs unknown hold thee silent and alone, silent through those three dread hours, wrestling with evil powers. Left alone with human sin, gloom around thee and within, till the appointed time is nigh, till the Lamb of God may die. Let's pray together.